Hello and welcome to another episode of Green Minds. I'm Sharon, your host for this episode, and I'm super excited to be joined today by Robert, founder of Sigwatch, and Charlotte Moore, um, head of research. So Sigwatch is a company that tracks real-time activist campaigns and NGO activity, shining a light on how NGOs are driving policy within key social and environmental spheres. Um, They have partnered with everyone from big brands to big names within the sustainable finance arena uh, to really help minimize risk and protect the planet. Um, Charlotte, Robert, we're so excited to have you. Um, And so before we dive into uh, the power of NGOs in driving policy and also what we can garner from all of the things that they're creating and disseminating in the policy arena. Robert, I really wanted to understand how does a physicist move from physics to harnessing the power of NGOs and creating SIGWATCH? Well, uh, it's a question that I often think about for myself, actually. How did I do this? I mean, there is a straight line answer, which is that data facts um, have always been the appeal me uh, in science and therefore uh, I felt that applying uh, data and quantitative methods to public policy um, would be not only um, uh, useful but also sort of a challenging intellectual exercise. But the the real story is is that I was much better uh, as a hand waver than I was as a physicist. So I realized so early on in my university time that I wasn't going to stay in physics. Um, but I did a lot of writing and journalism at university, and that took me into a career initially of technical writing, and then uh, technology public relations, and then general public relations, culminating in reputation management and issues management work um, for big companies and industry associations. So working in, in public relations consultancy, uh, the thing that always struck me was how often NGOs and you know, campaigning groups would run rings around industry, despite being you know, vastly less well-resourced. Um, and what campaigners were is particularly good at doing is getting the media and other supportive voices on their side. The, the constant complaint of industry was that, uh, that they weren't being heard, but the reality often is that actually what they were saying and the way they were saying it just wasn't very interesting. So they weren't working the media nearly as effectively as campaigning groups were. So that led me to to uh, study how NGOs campaign and how they communicate. And I had a, a, a started to develop a consultancy, which was the precursor of SIGWATCH around training companies in learning to communicate more like NGOs. And when we did that, we found that we, w- we wanted data. We wanted to be able to demonstrate what real life campaigns were doing. We wanted to be able to dissect the campaigns, to pick apart the strategies and tactics that worked, that made an impact. And that in turn led us to think, well, actually the NGO campaigning is now uh, so great, so widespread and covers so many different aspects of public policy that maybe we should just focus on trying to understand that and draw the lessons of the campaigning from what NGOs are campaigning about and how they're doing it and the arguments and issues that they're raising and take that information to companies and to industry groups and governments and help them develop their own public policy uh, responses. And that's where the business is now. That's really amazing. Thank you so much for that insight. And I love I love the journey through science and, and public policy and also 
learning how to um, speak the language of the various different stakeholders. Um, so Charlotte, coming to you, what was your impetus into this arena? And yeah, how, how come you're here? Good question. Uh, my story is, is slightly shorter than Robert's and, and slightly less interesting, I'm afraid. Um, but yeah, my background is in languages, actually. I studied languages at university. And because of that, I spent some time in Argentina. And while I was there, I got involved in feminist activist campaigning. Um, and then I came back and I wrote my dissertation about this particular activist campaign and, and the tactics it used and, and the campaigning styles. Um, so that was kind of my entry into, into studying activism. Um, and then a couple of years later, I, I got a job at Sigwatch and, and it was so new and interesting. And, and I think because we don't have any real direct competitors, there's no one else doing what we do. And it kind of introduced me to a world of, of things that I'm really interested in. So sustainability generally, environmentalism, human rights. Um, you know, there's always something to learn from studying activism. So, so yeah, I guess that's, that's how I ended up here. I really like what you say about um, the fact that there is no one in the arena quite like you guys and focusing on the specific nexus. That, that you're focusing on and I really I really agree I think it's such an innovative space to to be within so one of Sigwatch's like famous slogans or for me famous slogans is NGOs don't just make the weather they are the weather and I wondered um Robert could you just expand on that how did that come to be and really what does that mean um well it's a it's an attempt to to get across in in a few words um, just how important activist groups are. I think that we're all very aware of of campaigners when they get in get their headlines. You know, whether it's insulate Britain blocking motorways or uh, um, uh, Greta Thunberg um, uh, addressing large crowds, uh, being highly critical of the United Nations or or indeed the um, COP twenty six talks. Um, but I think. Behind that, sort of, it almost sort of covers up what's really going on in the background, which is literally hundreds of thousands of very committed uh, political activists, but operating outside of the traditional parliamentary political party type roots, um, trying to influence public policy and reaching out and learning how to operate all the various levers that society can offer from uh, the decisions that big business makes to the policies that industry associations develop and push to to um, uh, regulators, um, obviously uh, trying to influence politicians. NGOs are not simply noises off. They're not simply uh, one of many uh, groups, voices, opinion um, holders that have to be listened to by business or government. They are in many ways the the uh, sort of the er voice. The, the voice that starts most of these issues and campaigns going. There's really hardly an issue in environment or human rights or animal rights or consumerism or business ethics that hasn't been started by some campaigner somewhere or some campaigning group operating in some country who's starting to, to speak up and to research and, and assess um, why this is not good for society and what should be done about it. And then within weeks or more likely months or years, that starts to become uh, an issue in the wider debate. And now business and politicians start to talk about it. But the 
the seed of that was NGO campaigning. So the point we're trying to make is, is that if you understand what NGOs are worried about today, you're really understanding what the problems that business is going to have to face uh, tomorrow. And by tomorrow, I mean within the next year to five years. So it's that idea that NGOs are not only very influential, they in many ways create the, the whole environment in which business now has to operate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that's really interesting about your data set is that looking at the raw data, you can really understand what matters across a whole theme. Um, whereas if you were just reading, say, Greenpeace's um, literature or whatever they'd come out with recently, then you might not get as much of an insight into trends. And so that moving from the qualitative to the quantitative and quantifying on such a vast level is is super insightful. Um, so Charlotte, kind of to jump off the back of that, what kind of trends are you seeing, especially as we emerge out of COP um, for over the last two weeks? What, what key trends are you seeing within the data at the minute? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, part of what we do at SIGWatch every month is is we put out a list of, of new sort of angles or trends that we've picked up uh, in the past month to see if they're going to sort of gather pace and, and um, become more important. But the two that I have been particularly focusing on and that we've noticed have, have been on kind of an upwards trend over the past couple of months is um, agriculture and its contribution to climate change, and specifically uh, divestment campaigns aimed at the agricultural industry. We've seen that um, shoot up. Yes, so agriculture and its contribution to climate change and agricultural divestment campaigns is a big one. And then also human rights, but not just human rights as an issue on its own, but human rights being increasingly brought into other issues. So for example, environmental issues that traditionally would have just focused on, on purely environmental factors these campaigners are now bringing in human rights to kind of bolster their argument. So when you're talking about agriculture, you could be talking about deforestation, greenhouse gas emissions, but increasingly we're talking about indigenous rights and workers' rights in supply chains. So that's um, quite an interesting trend that we're seeing, which is combining the environmental and the social to bolster arguments and to give more sort of strength to what the activists are saying. That's really heartening to see that more and more NGOs and then by default through your data that corporations are also seeing that a lot of the climate impacts are inherently social and that we can't forget the the social side of climate change. So in terms of corporates because they are the people who access your data, the people who use your data are you seeing a shift in how corporates and by default investors are engaging with NGO communities and therefore changing their roles as stewards of the planet? I think, yes, the short answer is absolutely yes. It's been going on for some years, actually. It's just sort of building up a serious head of steam. But I think when we started SIGWatch, which was actually as a consultancy you know, 20 years ago, it was still very common in larger companies um, for, the, for the senior management to refer to environmentalists as tree huggers, to essentially see them as a as a, uh, a fringe voice, um, uh, you know, usually associated with 
um, left-wing politics and, and a lack of washing. Um, and that, you know, that business sort of knew what it was doing. Um, and although obviously they would run into difficulties on individual projects, it wasn't going to be anything mainstream that they would have to concern themselves with. The change now, and that's, I would say, come about largely because of a new generation of managers who have grown up with the likes of Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and see them as utterly legitimate, unlike the previous generation. They see NGOs much more as reflecting public sentiment, uh, as reflecting certainly in their polling of consumers, what people genuinely want, even if they don't fully understand the trade-offs, um, you know, what you have to sacrifice to improve environmental performance or, or introduce sustainability into a product. Consumers obviously would like all these benefits for nothing. But the fact is they do want those benefits and business understands that. So the result is, is that is that we see business seeing NGOs now um, not necessarily as partners, and that actually would be inappropriate, but certainly to see them as legitimate voices bringing legitimate concerns to the table and engaging with NGOs on a, um, on a, a basis of equals, um, a bringing together of expertise, um, sometimes uncomfortable truths, but nonetheless, certainly a, a, a voice that has to be heard and understood. And knowing, of course, as well, that their own investors, their employees, uh, their labor unions, if they, if they have them involved in the business, will also uh, tend to be on the side of NGOs increasingly. And in fact, the shift of investment sentiment, um, which of course has manifested itself in the rise of uh, in environmental, social, and, and governance criteria for investments, ESG, um, shows just, you know, just that this is not now just um, a, a, a you know a, a minority view. This is now becoming mainstream practice. So no business can really talk about how it operates without addressing the kinds of issues that 20 years ago, you know, would barely have got beyond the, you know, a local manager dealing with the media or, or maybe engaging with individual NGOs. And now it's really right up in, at board level. It's really heartening to to hear especially because so Alec and I, um, one of the other podcast hosts, were up at COP um, the weekend before last and a lot of the frustration was around NGOs not being heard. Um, and so hearing you say that actually they are being heard and there is space perhaps away from the COP arena and the madness of the COP circus for their voices to be heard is, um, yeah, is really optimistic and positive i think it's a question of what you mean by being heard mm -hmm. the problem and i saw if i'm cutting into charlotte's view here but i think the problem with cop 26 is that it was essentially a governmental conference i mean it was more so than ever before um and you've got you know quite significant obstruction um coming from governments whose tax revenues depend a great deal on fossil fuel development um, that that is their problem, and even though countries that are uh, uh, would see themselves as being very sympathetic to the climate cause um, are caught in this uh, dilemma. They are very conflicted. Countries like Norway, um, even the UK, which still have oil and gas industries, so uh, that that's where the problem is. And I think when the NGO said they weren't being heard, it wasn't that they weren't being heard by business; it's that they weren't being heard by governments. And since governments are the decision makers at COP26. That obviously really matters. But the problem with COP26 is that it is, you know, above all, an intergovernmental forum. Um, and rightly or wrongly, the organisers of COP26 felt that 
that governments would be more willing to negotiate if they were under less pressure from NGOs. It didn't really achieve very much because the NGOs just created the pressure outside the venue instead of inside. But there always has been this tension with the big COP meetings as to the role of um, of uh, uh, civil society in them. But ultimately, the opposition um, that NGOs felt weren't listening to them was coming from governments that are very dependent on or even marginally dependent on fossil fuel production. And that includes you know, countries like Norway and, and, and Great Britain, who would see themselves as being on the right side of the climate argument. But they still have a problem. They're still conflicted on fossil fuel production. So that's where I think the NGO frustration came from. I mean, Charlotte, you may have a different view on that, but that was my feeling. No, I completely agree. And I, I think I also want to add that even when it comes to business, there's a difference between being heard and someone taking action on what they're hearing. I think while a lot of people might be paying attention to what the NGOs are saying, whether or not there is there is sort of the, um, the drive to act on it in a way that NGOs would find satisfying is a different question. That's true. Business is very good at sounding enthusiastic and then doing very little. Um, but some genuinely you know, are uh, moving forward. The, the, the problem ultimately for business in all environmental issues is simply the size of their footprint. If you are you know, a global company like Unilever or Nestle or Coca-Cola, it almost doesn't matter how you produce your products. The very fact that you're producing them means you've got a very big footprint. You are, you are you know, um, implicated in what many environmentalists would claim to be unsustainable consumption by the very fact that you're in business. So that's quite a dilemma for business. They, they can't really square that circle very easily. So the best they can do is to try to deal with the more manifest problems at the edges of their supply chains and their production methods without actually sacrificing the very right to be in business in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And especially these larger conglomerates, like their scope threes are just massive their scope three emissions and so trying to curtail that is is really going to be a decade-long process and whether it can be curtailed to the point where it reaches zero um yeah is, is definitely another question so you kind of you both of you touched on the role of companies in in facilitating sustainability but whose role do you think it is to hold those companies accountable um, as they try and move to net zero and broadly as governments try to become more Paris aligned? Charlotte, do you like to take that one? Uh, yes, I will, although it's obviously quite a difficult question. Um, I think a lot of people, and I think particularly NGOs, would argue that that it, it should be governments that should be doing more to hold companies accountable and also to kind of create an environment in which companies can, can make more strident steps towards sustainability. Um, there's also the argument that it falls on us as consumers to hold companies to account and sort of vote with our wallets. Um, personally, I don't know that that would be enough alone. Um, I think NGOs do a really good job of holding companies to account, but the issue is that's only really effective if they can persuade companies to change their behavior, which, as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of companies, as Robert said, do a very good job of, of sounding enthusiastic, but maybe aren't 
capable of making or aren't willing to make the kind of changes that NGOs are asking for. Um, so yeah, it's a very difficult question. And I think, you know, in the context of a, of a climate crisis, I think everyone has to take a certain level of responsibility. Um, but Robert, I don't know if you have a different view on that. No, I think you've, I think you've explained it very well. I think we have to also consider what we mean by holding companies or indeed any um, decision makers to account. There's the there's holding them in, to account um, in the court of public opinion. Um, in other words, what NGOs are, are very good at doing is exposing misbehavior or, or wrongdoing or unethical behavior in the hope that companies will be simply embarrassed into change. Um, and that can be very effective for certain kinds of companies, but other kinds of companies, basically, they sort of they learn to live with the embarrassment and carry on. Then you've got the the, the legal holding companies to account, which means politicians or regulators or even the courts actually forcing uh, companies to change their behaviour. And clearly, you know, that is the, the ultimate goal. That's why NGOs have been pressing so hard and, and so vociferously for legislation, both in the national courts and also at the European Union level, for uh, mandatory duties on companies to at the very least account for the impact of their operations overseas. Um, to, in other words, to declare them, even if they can't be made to do something about it, it's a start. But that, you know, that requires serious legislation, which uh, is not easy to pass. There are many counter-interests and counter-voices um, pressing against that. So the NGO's role is to is to get this ball rolling, but in no way can it carry, carry it through and you know, through the touch bar. I really like that. Thank you both. That's a very nice breakdown of each of the stakeholders and their role because you guys are absolutely right. No individual stakeholder can shoulder um, the burdens of a climate transition and there are no golden bullets for any of this. So I will like leave the very difficult um, system change questions behind and move on to something a little bit lighter and just a quick fire round. So I have a couple questions just to gain a deeper insight into what you're reading and who you're following because we have a lot of listeners who are embarking on their sustainability careers and I think it's really helpful to them to just be able to understand who they should go and read from and who they should be listening to um, especially as a lot of us are doing masters this year and so are very eager to learn. So yeah, guys, what's been your favourite read this year? It doesn't have to be climate related. It could be, yeah, just anything really, fiction or non-fiction. Um, Charlotte, do you want to start? I can, yeah. Um, mine isn't uh, climate related, I'm afraid, but it is related to uh, the social and, and human rights. It's a book called Bury Me Standing by Isabel Fonseca. Um, and it's about the history of the Romani people in Eastern Europe. And it's written by a woman who lived in a Roma community, I think in Albania for, for a few years. Um, I read it this summer and I just thought it was a really, really beautiful book about a community that, that most people don't know anything about. And if you do know about it, it's probably something negative. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was a really interesting dive into the ways that they've been persecuted and also about different Romani activists who are organizing for community rights. Yeah, I just thought it was it was a really beautiful book and really interesting and it gave a good window into into a community that I didn't know a lot about. Uh, Robert, what about you? Well, 
mine also has nothing to do with my day to day work. Um, I read a lot of science books um, because that's a personal interest as well as a, an original professional interest. And the book that really um, appealed to me this year was uh, called The Beautiful Cure by uh, uh, Daniel Davis. Um, and it's about really the, the enormous advances in understanding how the body's immune system works. Um, and it's so, so more complicated than we ever thought. It's so, so more complicated even than I remember reading when I was at university. Um, clearly, there have been enormous advances. And it's such an intricate system. And it's almost a sort of a model for, for how the world works, for how society works. It's lots of interlinked parts all moving together, um, trying to stay in harmony. And sometimes it goes out of harmony. It has to be brought back into harmony. I don't think that's such a, a, a bad metaphor for the way that different voices in society try to be heard and try to evolve a common uh, approach to dealing with world, the world's problems. Absolutely. Thank you. That's I, I, I will definitely add both of those to my reading list. Um, and in terms of thought leaders within the space that you guys are in, who's inspiring you at the moment? Um, if they have Twitters, who can we follow on Twitter? I don't know about you, Robert. I'm not sure that I can think of anyone for this. Unfortunately, I'm not on Twitter, so I miss out on all of the, the discourse there. Um, Robert, do you have anyone that comes to mind? No, I really struggled. I mean, there are people that I admire. I admire Greta Thunberg. I admire mm. David Attenborough. Um, I admire um, Marcus Rashford. Mm-hmm. These are people who have you know, put their personal credibility on the line to to say very unpopular things um, and have not wavered uh, from their beliefs um, and but also recognise that they have to persuade. So that combination of being willing to persuade while at the same time being unshakable in their in in what they're convinced um, uh, is the problem and how we need to look at it, I think is is admirable. Um, and in all three of those people, I think we can see that none of these are none of them are ideologues. And that is um, a, a quite, an, quite a, an important lesson of life. Because I know one of your questions you wanted to ask was pearls of wisdom. <laughs> and and you know, I would say it's about questioning everything, but at the same time learning who and what you can trust. It's no good questioning everything if you just end up trusting nothing. Um, but at the same time, always think about you know, why, why is this being said and who's benefiting from it? Um, and how has that data been gathered? Uh, is it sound? Is there integrity? Is Can you trust the people who are behind that data? And once you've established who you can trust and who you can't trust, that opens up a whole uh, you know, planet load of good information out there. We don't have to walk around doubting everything and being sceptical about everything. But we do need to be sensibly questioning about a lot of the, um, uh, if not untruths, certainly uh, confused truths that come our way. I love that. Yeah, I'm always in great admiration of Greta because I feel like she consistently produces these sound bites that so many people across the world can can grab onto and through which they can learn more about and engage more with the climate crisis. And I I, I agree. I think the way that you package information and, and your power to bring people along with that information is is both a great gift and also super magical. 
Um, Charlotte, just to like piggyback off of what Robert said, do you have any pearly words of wisdom um, for our listeners? Yeah, I suppose, it, and this is related to what Robert said, It's I think it's so important to draw your information from as many sources as you possibly can. And maybe this is why I don't necessarily have a thought leader to recommend to you, because I think the more that you that you study activism and the more that you get involved in, in sustainability and ESG, the more that you realize that everything is so complex and so nuanced and there are so many different arguments um, that people feel really passionately about. And it's not always as easy as, as this is morally right or this is morally wrong. You know, everything is is much more complicated than that. And so I think maybe the danger with with choosing a thought leader and sticking behind them is, is that you miss out on the nuance. And so drawing your information from as many different sources as you can, whether that's from activism or looking at what business is saying, looking at what governments are saying, and obviously doing this in a critical way and, and being aware that, that everyone has an agenda, right? I mean, everyone has an agenda. Um, no one is unbiased. But but I think you have to pay attention to what everyone is saying to to figure out what you think and, and where you think the truth lies and and to get a proper understanding of of all of the issues because there are so many issues and they're so interlinked and, and it's really hard to properly understand what's going on out there. I agree. If I may add to that, I think it's important to distinguish between those who recognise that there's a risk of bias and work very hard to correct that. Um, and indeed, that's where you know, the best of modern science comes from, is a recognition that I could be wrong and that you need to almost, you need to go out of your way to try to prove yourself wrong before you can even start to claim that you may be right. So it's that sort of, that kind of honesty and humility in front of the facts um, against those whose biases are almost worn uh, as a badge of pride. Um, <laughs> I have an opinion, this is the opinion that I'm going to have, and I'm not going to be moved from it because I know I'm right. Mm. Um, and it's a uh, it's very easy simply because there's such a flood of information from so many places to to be skeptical about everything and doubtful and distrustful of everything and everybody. And I don't think we need to do that. We just have to be um, uh, wise and sensible and thoughtful about who's talking and why are they talking and how are they going about trying to persuade us? Are they doing it because they're, they're working from the facts or are they doing it because they simply want to change our minds? Thank you. That's beautifully um, optimistic. And so my final, final question, I promise, is how optimistic are you that we as a society, as individuals can galvanise um, and and just, yeah, have, have an impact that's good and sustainable on the world? I think we have to start with our own behaviour. Mm. We start with that and then we work out. Um, join an NGO, get involved in, in an environmental group in your own area, you know, just improving your local environment, um, uh, litter picking, encouraging rewilding of, of lawns, um, uh, planting out for, bee, uh, for biodiversity, for bee-friendly environments. These are all small things, but if they're multiplied up, they can make an enormous difference. They're not a substitute for that flight to New York, unfortunately, we still have to make our personal sacrifices. But until we understand what it's like to live a more environmental life, I don't think we can really go around talking about it as if we've got all the answers. Yeah, I think 
Um, coming at it from a slightly different angle, I, I think it can sometimes be quite difficult to be optimistic with the kinds of governments that we have, particularly in the West and in developed countries. And I think while I agree with what Robert's saying that we, we sort of individually have to walk the walk, I think ultimately it, we do live in, within a particular system and, and we, have to, um, we have to have leaders who are willing to make big changes. Uh, and I think, you know, if we relied on everyone changing their behavior individually, then it's going to take us a long time to get to where we need to be. Um, but I think personally, I draw a lot of hope from what's going on in, in developing countries. Um, I think, I mean, we saw it at COP, right? The amount of, of indigenous rights protesters. And there was that one, he was the president of a, of a small island somewhere. And it's really bad. I can't remember what the island was called. But he did a speech for COP standing knee deep in water um, on land that was dry. Yes. Prime Minister, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah just a few years ago to sort of highlight that, that this is actually something that really feels very distant to us in the developed world and in Western countries, but is really affecting people in, in developing countries, um, unfortunately. But I think I draw a lot of hope from their activism and, and from the way that they're tackling it. And I hope that in the West, we can become a little bit less complacent and, and follow their lead and start to take it a bit a bit more seriously and also provide them with the support that they need to to tackle the issues that they're facing. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you both for letting me kind of peek into your world um, of NGOs and the power of NGOs in shaping how we conduct business. Um, yeah, thank you so much. So on that bombshell, uh, thank you so much for diving deep with me into the world of data, activism and change. Um, as always, please email us your comments, thoughts, questions, queries and views. We're always happy to receive them. Um, and tune in next week where Jamie and Octavio will be interviewing the dynamic Laurent Segalen uh, on renewables, climate tech and how we are redefining energy. <laughs>